Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lundberg from Altus Performance, and this week we are joined by one of my very favorite coaches, James Seekman. He's been coined the master of the modern short game and been recognized by Golf Magazine as a top 100 teacher, a top 50 teacher by Golf Digest, a nine-time PGA Section Teacher of the Year, as well as just a couple of years ago being named the National PGA Teacher of the Year. And he's a very busy man working with dozens of LPGA, PGA Tour players who, like me, sought out James in search of some short game answers. Almost 10 years ago, I wanted to learn more about coaching the short game and I had heard a little bit about James. I reached out to him for a little bit of advice and rather than just give me some tips, he invited me out to spend a couple days with him and at his home base in Omaha. And I did that a couple different times. And at one point, maybe a year later, I came to him again and said, you know, I really enjoy teaching really good players. He was coaching at the highest level. I wanted some advice. And rather than just give me what I was just expecting, he said, well, why don't you come spend a little bit of time with me on the road and watch me in action and you can observe and learn a few things. And I I think that that speaks to the kind of guy that James is. Not only is he an extremely knowledgeable and amazing short game coach, but he's just passionate about helping others in a way that I haven't really encountered in very many people. He's he's one of my favorite people in all of golf. And in this conversation, we'll dig into a few different topics. First, at the beginning, there's some short game technical conversation. And I know that it's a lot more mechanics talk than we typically have in our episodes, but I know that there's an appetite for it. So we'll go full golf geek in the beginning, and then we'll get into another strength of James's coaching, which is how he prescribes practice for his players. And then on the back end of the conversation, we'll get into some really valuable talk about some mental topics that James is so good at integrating into his coaching as well. And I know that many of you will be curious to learn more after you listen to this conversation. So I would highly recommend that you check out the two books that James has written, Your Short Game Solution and Your Putting Solution. They're both excellent. But first, listen to this episode after a quick shout out to our friends at Total Golf Trainer. And then it's on to episode 58 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with James Seekman. The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback for golfers of all skill levels to help solve a wide variety of swing issues. And we haven't really seen an issue that it can't solve from path issues to improving club face control and even body mechanics. Pretty much any issue that you have, the Total Golf Trainer can help. The 3.0 kit is the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing with the easy-to-use adjustable training rods that can be attached to your club or your body, and you can increase or decrease the difficulty level so anyone from juniors to beginners to pros will all benefit. We've enjoyed getting creative to find all the different ways that we can use the Total Golf Trainer, and they've got some great videos on their website that show it in use. So to learn more and watch those videos on how to improve your game with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at Total Golf Trainer. But now on to our episode. I just want to start with some short game talk and to set the stage a little bit for some background on my introduction to you. Probably, I don't know, 2011 or 2012, I happened upon these videos online of you teaching some short game concepts that were pretty much the total opposite of how me and and most other players has been had been taught how to specifically chip and pitch. So I was really intrigued and, and we'll probably cover the path that led me down to getting to know you a little bit better. But now that we're almost 10 years down the road and a lot of what you were teaching then is, is pretty much accepted as common knowledge and, and due in large part to your efforts to educate players and coaches, 
But at the time, it was a little radical. Can, can you provide the listeners as a starter just a description of the what not to do, what you saw that was being taught and, and what frustrated you because it was the way that you were taught, basically those old rules of chipping and, and your opinion, why they did more harm than they did good? Yeah, well, the, number one, you always got to ask questions. And conventional wisdom is not always right. You can't accept it as truth just because it's conventional wisdom, right? So it just wasn't passing the eye test for me. You know, was, I was, you know, Corey, I think if we, if we, a little bit nature versus nurture, if we just grew up without instruction, chances are you're going to figure it out and do it pretty close to right if you hang in there long enough, you know, it's just the natural course of learning. But so I had that gift a little bit when I was young. And as I got older and started playing college and started getting some of this coaching, like, hey, the lean left, hands ahead, don't break down, keep your left arm straight, don't, you know keep your head still, all that stuff. I just got certainly no better, which with hard work, it should. That's, right. that, that's the first. And then as I was watching Semi Ballesteros, who, who uh, was good friends with my brother, and I was lucky enough to go to practice sessions with and play practice rounds with. I wasn't playing, but I would walk around or caddy and you know even have dinner and see the greats like Corey Pavin and um, – Raymond Floyd and, and people like that. I'm like, that's not what these people do. Their head moves, they're getting rhythm through their feet, their clubs releasing, they're, you know, it's just like, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to just wipe the slate clean. And instead of taking conventional wisdom as fact, I'm just going to teach what great players do. And got some awesome video of Seve and Corey Pavin and Raymond Floyd and some other great players. And I thought, that's what I'm going to teach. Now, at the time when I was, yeah, I was helping players, so I knew it was correct. I mean, the ultimate test, right? But man, I was getting a ton of pullback from the profession. You know, they're like, you're crazy teaching this. This is, uh, yeah, but, but that's okay because the commitment came from the growth that, that the players were, were doing and I could see it was working. And, uh, I under, started to understand how the pieces kind of fit together. And so at that point, you don't really care what others. Thanks. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I know that audio, the podcast is not the greatest form for going through some technical instruction, but I know that there's always an appetite for some form advice whenever we have a coach on, especially someone like you, who's got this really clearly defined set of fundamentals. So I just want to briefly go over some of the preferences that you have that when you're initially assessing someone's finesse wedge technique, just the things that you're looking at. So, I mean, and maybe it's easier to cover the common errors that you're most likely to see if, if we kind of go set up and plane and face and the club head release and, right. and, and those fundamentals, if we can give a brief overview of those, because I know that listeners will want to hear some of that. Well, yeah, absolutely. So this is a long conversation, but let's first start with just the physics. I mean, there's, there's two interactions. There's the club with the ball. So you want uh, you know, the ball to launch up with a reasonable amount of spin. You want a soft touch, right? And there's also club ground contact. And I think there's an optimal situation there as far as the angle of attack and how the bottom of the club is interacting with the turf. And certainly if you do it the wrong way, hands ahead, lean left, you know, there's a million errors that you can make and you stick the leading edge in the ground. And if you put it just a an eighth of an inch behind the ball, uh, with a, a sharp leading edge and maybe a little bit of a muddy lie or a grainy lie, you're going to have a debilitating mess. You're going to have chunks, double hits, you know, whatever. So that's the starting point. Then there has to be a natural way to 
to get all the pieces to fit together to create function, right? And through the study of Seve and these others, I kind of came up with five key foundational pieces and and a way to understand how that they blend together to create function. And so if I, if I was going to give a general overlay of those five foundational pieces, it'd be help create the low point of the natural swing arc in front of the ball by uh, aligning a little open. So not just feet, more importantly, like hips, chest, forearms, right? Anytime you're aligned a little more to the left, that naturally moves the low point slightly more to the left. And head position is really important there. You don't want your head tilted behind the ball like you would with the driver, you know, secondary axis tilt. Right. So a lot of times that might necessitate a soft lead arm and maybe a weaker trail hand grip, which would be different than what you do with a driver or a five iron. And so one of the things I started to realize as I was going is like, wow, these are all what, what makes you good from 10 yards might make you really bad from 200. And I think that's a really important concept for all players to understand is they're struggling. They can't just say, I learned this in my last lesson to create amazing long iron play and I'm going to transfer it over to the, my short game. Well, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's, they're independent. So let's talk adaptations because I, I know that and kind of what you're getting at, I, I asked you to briefly explain your entire finesse wedge philosophy briefly. <laughs> well, let me <laughs> give you set up low point in front, up the plane backswing. The plane would be, let's say, loosely termed to the shaft plane established at setup, you know, if you're a typical video camera setup. A unique sequence where in the transition, instead of shifting and firing your hips like you would in a full swing, you're going to let the, the lead arm and the club kind of start together, but the club's actually moving slightly faster than the lead arm in the transition. And then the, the lead arm and chest pick up speed and the max speeds in front. So the lead arm and chest turning through to kind of a similar rate. Okay. Yep. I'm a big fan of allowing the club to release. That's not a flip. That's not a hold. That's just like swing the club. And then lastly, the fifth thing would be that the energy flows the direction you're hitting. So if you think of that through center pressure, your feet or head movement. When you watch Seve or Corey Pavin in the backswing, their head would move forward as they deliver it stays forward and turn their chest. Well, now the center of my mass is more over my left foot, so therefore or my lead foot's holding more of the weight. So if I said those five things create function, I can certainly explain to you how and why, but I've never seen anybody that I've coached in any way do all five well and chip no, yeah, It just doesn't work. Right. Go back to the the release part because I think that's an important thing. I think it was it represents probably the biggest difference between what we were being taught before. Why is it when we release the club head like you recommend? Why is it not flippy? All right, it can be flippy if the lead arm and chest stall out prematurely. But the peak speed of the lead as you're swinging through, I'm going to stand up just in case here. As you can, as the arms are coming through. The peak speed of the lead arm and the chest actually happen after impact. So if they stop prematurely, then that would be a flip, right? Right. But if I had that same movement with peak speed of the arm and the chest moving, you know, then I look like uh, Luke Donald or, or Steve Stricker. So a lot of people take that really bad debilitating kind of high handicap stall flip thing as a wrist error issue, but it's not. It's it's a it's a lead arm and chest error. Yeah. And that, but that obviously creates that would be too shallow a delivery and it would create poor contact if you if you did just stop and flip it. But well, yeah, and you you said the shallow part, and and that's what the the other thing that I think is so appealing to the system is that it makes sense 
when you're trying to balance out some steeps and shallows. So can you speak right. to, to that a little bit? Yes. So so if I said those five fundamentals, there's balance. As I always talk about it's like two bristled cones that just fit nicely together. And it doesn't have to be perfect to have function, but there has to be balance to have function. So if I said, hey, in my core foundational pieces, I have two steepening elements, which would be like low point in front and energy flowing towards the pin, where they center pressure through your feet moving into your lead foot as you move. And two shallowing elements would be a finesse sequence where instead of like driving and down cock and rotating and allowing the club to the angles to come out and the club to swing. And this release allowing the club head to pass naturally. And one neutral element, which would be an on-plane delivery, there's function. Well people that are dysfunctional typically have too much too many steeps or too many shallows. And typically the ones that are really dysfunctional, the ones that get yippy, let's say, that feel like they have the chipping lips are shallow, early, and steep late. So, so for example, if I'm going to give you an example of somebody that comes to me and they, they can't get it on the green from 10 yards, maybe set up close. That's a uh, shallow element. There's, when we're talking about shallow, it's the delivery of the club head down into the ball where we want. Basically, here's my picture. Six degree down angle. I'm, let's define it. Ten. Fairway lie, 10-yard carry with a lob wedge, okay? Yep. Flat lie. Six-degree down angle, low point in front with the angles coming out so that you're using a little bit of bounce. The, the shaft would be leaning forward about, let's say, five to six degrees of impact, okay? So if you had a 60-degree wedge, the loft might be 54 degrees of impact. That would be different than a full swing where instead of de-lofting at five degrees, you might de-loft at 15, okay? Yeah. All right, so... There's this picture of this club optimally, the contact with both the ball and the ground are optimal. Low point in front, six degrees, angles coming out, so you're, you're a little bit of the back of the club's interacting with the turf. And typically also another way to add bounce to a club would be, let's say, the, the and the face of the club open to the swing direction, because that's another way to create bounce, right? So you can't, you're not going to chip with the hooded club face, let's say, right. okay? Then if you have this guy that's yipping, let's say he's aimed to the right or square even, takes it inside. All right. So it's a shallow setup, shallow backswing. Now he has to steepen the delivery to get the low point in front because if he doesn't, he's going to hit behind the ball. And typically the way you see that would be kind of poor rhythm, pushing the handle forward and then a, a leg driver, a knee dip at the ball. So you see that leg buckle. That leg buckle is a, a subconscious response to trying to get the low point of the arc forward or steepen the delivery. And a lot of times, if you improve the setup in the backswing, somebody that's been buckling their legs for a decade, they'll just stop. It goes they, away. They don't know, need you to. You don't even have to address it. It just goes away, right? Because it's a defense mechanism. And they, they intuitively know they don't have to do it to drop the club on the ball. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Once you've developed someone's that base version, what you just talked about, the we're in the fairway lie, we're 10 yards away, we're trying to have that six degree angle of attack. 
I want you to speak a little bit to processing skills a little bit. So now you've got the good base version, but now your ball is not in that perfect fairway line. Now you're on a down slope right. and some rough. And so now you've got to kind of change those around a little bit. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what's needed to adapt in those situations, but then how do we develop those really effective processing skills? Because I think that a lot of the players that we're with, you know, great players, PJ tour players, they're, it's often pretty intuitive for them. They're right. walking up to that line. There's this unconscious process where right. they kind of know what to do. Whereas an aspiring player is oblivious to a lot of those environmental cues that they need to be paying attention to. That's hundred percent. It's intrinsic knowledge. They can just do it. They don't know how or why they know what they know. And, and we got to help our players that aren't in that same position develop that. Right. So this is a huge conversation and maybe the most important one that a coach can have about doing a good job helping their their students. So let's go with um, the first concept that is super important you need to realize, and coaches fail at this often, I believe, is that technique is not skill. Technique is maybe allow you to hit the ball solidly with some measure of control and some measure of repeatability, but you still have to, as you said, adapt for different lies, different types of grasses, pick landing spots, choose the right club, uh, match the energy to the dynamic loft and the lie. You know, so there's this, this huge shot making pool of knowledge that you have to develop, right? Well, the first issue is we pass on this information and we need to develop this intrinsic knowledge and this adapting and we don't give them the cues they need to start to unravel these pieces. So for example, you're doing 10 yard lies from a fairway and they're hitting them all great. And then the player goes out in the first hole, they hit it over the green. They got a downhill lie in the rough with a clump of grass behind the ball and they need to hit it soft shot. So now, now they're like, I don't even know what to do. They hit a bad shot and they go, man, that Corey didn't help me at all. You know? And the re- so, so once you learn your base, I think that's the natural starting point. And then why, why wouldn't it be right? You got to at least be able to do the simple ones and kind of understand how it works. But now I have to adapt for the uphill, downhill, bad lies. All the, so now if we group them and we talked about steeps and shallows and function, dysfunction, there are certain lies you need to steepen the delivery for. So if we said six degrees, obviously the low point's always in front. Well, if I want to come down a little more abruptly, let's say nine or 10 degrees, that would be downhill lies, balls sitting down in the rough, right? With a clump of grass behind. A steeper delivery would be advantageous. Now, if it's a steeper delivery, I might need to hit a low shot that runs or a high shot that stops. Those two you might treat differently, even though the angle of attack is steeper. We'll go through that. There might be three types of lies you need to shallow the delivery for. A severe upslope, where if you don't, you're going to dig the club into the turf. Balls teed up in the rough, or like I call a snow cone lie, like sitting right on top, where if you keep a normal angle attack, you might go underneath it and hit it high on the face. Right or balls really above you. Think um, uh, you got it's knee height. Right, same situation. Easy to hit behind that or dig too much. So that would be it. Now, the two ways I like to steepen it, and 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 everybody might have their own preference as a coach on which way. Like some people say, oh, well, steepen it, just take it outside. My personal preference would be to either put the ball back if I'm going to run it across the green, which de-lofts the club, right. Or widen out, open the face, lean the handle, lean your weight left. And when you choke down a little bit, that shortens the lever. And now the club's working a little more up and down as well. So I have a, a way to steepen the angle and hit it high. I have a way to steepen the angle and hit it low. And the same thing would be opposite 
nearly would be true there uh, when you're shallow. Of course, the easiest way to shallow it out might be to put the ball a little further forward in your stance. So on an upslope, you might move the ball position an inch forward, or you can take what I call a little uh, Raymond Floyd shot, where you take a little inside and hit like a little draw hand path shot. That would be a shallower delivery. So you just got to know when those are, right? So you as an elite coach, you know that if you're on a downslope and you take it inside, you're you're screwed, right? Yeah. Because it's going to be too shallow. You need to steepen it. So you need to explain, I think, at least uh, create a baseline for your students of when recognition of when I might need to steepen the delivery, when I might need to shallow it, and how. And then the the best learning is self-learning. It's self-discovery. And so as a coach, we need to create that environment to, and, and we might be pushing them along so the learning happens a bit quicker, right? But we're not doing the learning for them. They have to experience it, have some introspection, some reflection, and then make a little adjustment and try it again. And that's the natural learning process, right? Here's the question I have for you. Your player, he's out there. You've given this amazing shipping lesson. He's hadn't been able to get it on the green before, and now he's using the bounce of the club. He's got the low point in front from 10 yards. He's putting spin on the ball. He's clipping them all up there. Is he learning intrinsically? You know, Is he developing intrinsic knowledge for adaptions for shot making? No, because he has no experience in one type of shot. Right. So once you get the baseline technique, and that takes as long as it takes. I mean, you got to, it takes learning, it happens at different rates for everybody. But once you get that base, man, you better be quick to throw balls around and create these unique environments, different stress stressors, so that you create an environment that's conducive for learning these adaptions and then. You help them through this process, and there's no shortcut. You need reps, varied reps with mistakes, corrections, solutions that are applied, you know, and then over time you just learn this ability that the tour players have learned. I'm just following up on that point a little bit because another thing that I know that I learned from you and that you're so good at and that separates you is that the players that you coach all have a really defined and structured practice plan of how much block practice do I need? How much random practice, which is what you're talking about, developing those processing skills through spreading out balls and hitting different types of shots so that they're ready for when they encounter that on the golf course. So what makes for an effective practice plan for those players? And then how are you keeping your players accountable to them? Yeah, it's another amazing (laughs) discussion. We could write a book on every one of these topics, by the way. But so each minute of your practice should have intent there needs to be a, a mindfulness and i was just you know with, uh, with kobe bryant passing this last week i read an amazing quote by him it's not he said that's not how long you can practice it's how long you can practice and be mindful each moment right love it so i got this guy couldn't ship it on the green create a help him create a new motor pattern which is brain memory it's not muscle memory you can revert back to the old at any moment because it's in there forever it's in your brain forever or you could do the new the new pattern that we just learned yesterday Corey. Why should you do the new instead of the old? You're intending new. You might do the old. But there's two reasons, typically. The first would be inactivity. You take three weeks off, you're going to go back to the old pattern. It's stronger, right? So in your practice, when you open your practice in your warm-up, now this is after you've learned the new pattern, you got to tell your brain, hey, this is what we do. This is the pattern we're going to use. And you need checkpoints for that, which which you create enough structure where you say, okay, these are the five things I believe in chipping. I believe in this setup. Well, we can create a structure to create the setup. 
here's the backswing, there's the delivery, I'll check the weight. Maybe I give a drill for somebody to check their shadow, so we check where the center of pressure is going, whatnot. And if I said to you, we're going to take three minutes at the beginning of our practice, and we're going to make sure our foundational elements are, that we're nailing it, that our brain is understanding that this is the pattern we're going to do. That's all your brain needs, because now it's like, it's just every time you do that, it's strengthening it, right? But that takes mindfulness. You can't just go out there and just assume you're going to do what you learned yesterday. So you create that structured block practice. Now, if 10 reps doing it are good, 100 reps are not better. That's not how your brain works, right? So now we have to develop this intrinsic sense. So after you do your block practice warm-up, you do random practice where you're trying to develop your shot-making skills and running processes and, and being clear and committed as you walk in. These other soft skills that have everything to do with performance have nothing to do with technique. Like, what if you have great technique, but you're distracted over the ball or you're frightened or you're, you know, you, you let your mind wander to your score and it's creating anxiety or, you know, so you have these other skills we need to develop, right? And so that's random and variable practice. And then lastly, if you have a tournament player, and it doesn't have to be elite level. It can be a club player wanting to win the club championship, whatever. The other reason you would divert back would be stress. So, Corey, now that you have this good technique and we re refresh it every day and we're developing our intrinsic knowledge for shot making, we got to make sure you don't revert back your old pattern under stress, right? Yep. How are we going to do that? How would you do it? I'll use your words. I feel like I know what you might say, but the, the thing that I, again, one of many things that I've stolen is try to create an environment where you have to win your way off of whatever that practice task is, right? 100%. You create a situation where I'm good at stress. Stress is what I do. I do it every day. I do it every, it's what I do. So if, you know, it's almost like a Navy SEAL. I mean, that's how we train. We train under duress. So when we're under duress, we're, we're fine. But if you never train under duress, if you have your headphones in and you're listening to music or you're even if you're you're being mindful and you want to do well, but there's no punishment for failing. All right. Then you you're not training under duress. And there's a very good chance when you get that moment, that big moment where you want to do well, that you'll revert back to an old pattern. So what if now we have our player? He's done his block practice warm up. We got the new pattern in his brain. That's the one we're going to use today. We, we do enough random practice where f failure and bad shots is actually a good thing because it creates, helps learning and, and developing this intrinsic sense. It's like, okay, now we're going to test yourself, Corey. Now we're going to see if you can walk in when it really matters. I'll tell you two stories and then we'll, we can change topics. So I had a player, European tour, he set a goal. He said, I want to be the best player and the best putter in Ryder Cup history. Okay. Loved it. I, yeah. like, I, I love big goals like that. All right. So I gave him this game to play where it was a 10-ball putting game, and he had to make 9 out of 10 putts. And this would be su substantially beating strokes game putting. That's how I always kind of set up my games. It's like you're, you're beating it to a player if you can win this game. And obviously, it needs to be skill level appropriate, but this is skill level for this guy. Well, he had one five-footer left, and he needed to make it to, to win the game. If not, we're going to start over, and it's about a 15-minute game. But before he putted it, I made him do – run around the putting ring twice and do 25 push-ups. You're going to, well, you're going to be the best putter in the Ryder cup. Or you think your arms are going to feel like they're feeling right now <laughs> in this practice putting ring with nothing on the line. No, your, your heart's going to be pounding through your chest. Your arms are going to feel heavy. And by the way, now that you feel this way, if you miss this putt, we're going to do it again. And I promise you 
next time if we have the five footer, we're going to make it harder. And so now he's when he holds this five footer, which he did, that knowledge that he can do it when the chest is beating and the arms feel heavy and he did it under duress is really where I think confidence is derived from. It's derived from the work. A lot of people fall in love with the result. They don't fall in love with the work. And you can only fake it for so long. So the confidence has to come from the work. And there's nothing like testing it under duress to create confidence. Let's say that scenario had gone the other way, because another thing that you prioritize in your coaching, and maybe we can talk about kind of what your mental process looks like both pre and post shot, but you're really good at at helping players develop and then protect that self-image. So let's say that he misses misses that putt and then he does it again. He does the task again and and we see failure again. How do you deal with that and making sure that you are protecting the self-image? Well, there are a number of ways. And the primary thing you do as a coach is you set your culture or your rules at the beginning. So at the beginning, I might tell him, I said, listen, this is not going to be, this is not for the faint-hearted here. you you got to love the work. He's like, yes, uh, listen, I know if I'm going to be the best in Ryder Cup history, I'm going to have to, you know, do the work. And I'll say, you know, hard work is hard. So that means if we work hard and you go out and shoot 68 tomorrow, that would be hard work is easy. Everybody would be doing it, right? So you got to be willing to hit your head against the wall, hang in there, hang in there, hit your head against the wall, nothing's coming of it. Hang, you know, at some point, you'll reach a tipping point. And when you reach that, and it happens organically, that's where the big jump is going to be made. And so first off, if you don't create that expectation at the beginning or that understanding at the beginning, some people reach a hit of failure, a hurdle, an obstacle, and they'll just quit or they'll get frustrated. The high achievers in the world roll up their sleeves and they get so excited because they go, you know what, when I get over this obstacle, think about how much better I'll be. And they just can't wait to roll up their sleeves. So that has to happen at the beginning, that mindset. Now, let's say, for example, let's go back to a slightly different scenario. I give you this chipping lesson. You weren't chipping on the green. Now you're doing amazing. Now we go to random practice. You do pretty well, or maybe not. Or you go to the game and you're just failing horribly. It's okay to take a time out. Go back to your block practice station, revisit the foundational pieces, say, listen, under duress, you of the five, you're only doing these three. Let's revisit these other two. Go through your block practice, get it right, make sure that the performance is there in an environment that's not stressful, and say, okay, now we're going to take you back to this stressful environment and try it again. And at some point, you know, building the belief, building the, the, the patterns, that they, they will pass. And then that's where the growth is. And you can measure it. You can track the results through game playing. And you know, because you do the same stuff. That That's where the secret sauce is as far as people learning something new and then taking it under the heat in the battle and still and performing at a high level. Yeah. And I think that another piece of that that's baked into what you do is, is to helping players develop that attitude where they can handle that kind of stress and, and practice and that they're making sure that even in their failures, they're learning a lot and that those failures are really integral to that process of learning something new is how you f- help them formulate a process pre-shot and post-shot. And, and probably right. more, more important is the post-shot, in my opinion. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. The most important time in golf, Corey, is the first five seconds after a bad shot, right? right. Yeah. Or 
some people hit good shots and they kind of ho-hum them. And I, I want people to, the motion takes memory. So on, on a good shot, I want to smile. I want some self-satisfaction. I want a club twirl like Tiger Woods or, or whatever. But after a bad shot, you have a couple choices. So it's a bad shot. It's always relative to expectation. So a club player's expectation might be a little differently than Tiger Woods' expectation, where you know, they're just trying to get it on the green. They're happy. But if he doesn't hit to three feet underneath the hole, he's pissed, right? So, so relative to your expectation, there's either going to be a good outcome or a bad outcome. So on your bad outcomes, instead of throwing a pity party, getting frustrated, getting angry, I don't mind anger actually that much, but you can't get frustrated, dejected, down. You can't get this helpless, dejected response, emotional response to a negative outcome. You can't be embarrassed because those type of negative outcomes create scar tissues, you know, and a lot of players have them. And then, therefore, their mistakes they make, instead of helping them learn and grow, they make them worse because they latch onto them, right? And now that creates anxiety and, you know, all sorts of real physiological issues. So, what you do instead, this bad outcome happens, and it's going to happen because it's golf and we're not robots, and it doesn't matter who, who you are, they're coming. So you ask yourself one simple question. It's like, the solution for that is, what's the solution, right? And if you can answer that question and state it in a positive way, you just got better, even though you had a bad outcome. Because once again, learning demands some sort of introspection and then an adjustment or from what just occurred. So let's say you're the guy, I gave you this chipping lesson where you know how to adapt, you know how to run a process. You get to the first hole, you got the lie over the green, down slope, and you hit two inches behind the ball. Instead of getting dejected or angry, you think it through. And this is one of our things we got to do as a coach is we got to help give them enough information so they can positively self-coach, right? There has to be some understanding there. You go, you know what? If I had a do-over, I should have steepened the angle. And so next time I get that situation, I'm going to widen out my stance. I'm going to lean down the hill a little bit so that club works a little bit more up and down. And if you reimagine that in a positive way, now you're doing what Jim Furyk, Ben Crane, and a lot of elite players do, Fred, Fred Funk have done, which is make a mistake, replay it over positively in your mind. You might even see the ball go in. And then you go, well, you know what? I just got better. And that takes some emotional maturity. Right? A high emotional intelligence and some maturity to get that done. But that's what that's what's required. Yeah. It's uh it's not an option. If you want to be an elite performer at your level from wherever you are, if you're going from here to there, you have to have the ability to self coach. Because you as your your students, you're gonna be there what, one percent of the time at exactly. the most. Yep. We've spent some time talking the technique and we've, we've given a lot of advice to players, but I also know that we've got a lot of coaches that are listening as, as well. And so this can serve both the player and, and trying to help them identify the qualities in a coach that they need to be tuned into and attracted towards, as well as helping our coaches develop. So that are listening. So what are the characteristics that you feel distinguish the very best coaches in our sport where, whether they're coaching tour level or even recreational level? Well, Empathy is super important. You know, you got to you got to understand it's hard, and you got to be all in. And that kind of leads to a couple other things that I want to tell you. I was remember I told you I had two stories. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly right. Because I know you went on a little coaching foray and visited other elite coaches. Because yeah. you know, I was invited and couldn't make it, but I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to go watch Coach K run a practice at Duke. 
Okay. And they actually, it was the year they won the national championship. And I can't remember, but they had four freshmen on their team. And it was like their second practice. And he came over to talk before practice started. And he gave me a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, every minute of the two-hour practice was scripted out. I mean, there was like, okay, first two minutes, we're going to do this. Next three minutes, we're going to do this. And he came over and he said, you know, I got four college All-America, you know, McDonald's All-Americans on the team. They've been their star everywhere they've gone. The rules kind of haven't applied to them, so to speak. And I know for us to be good, we're going to have to be amazing at communicating. Now, usually star players aren't wouldn't, wouldn't be a master communicator, probably. Right. They're kind of used to getting their way. And so they worked on communication and defense for two hours, which is, you know, you, to, to be good at one, you got you to gotta be good at the other. The thing was scripted. He never looked at the sheet of paper in two hours, and I was had it in front of me, and they followed it right to the <laughs> point. So, so one of the things I think elite coaches do is they – have a plan for their players and the players can follow it. And they know at the end of their workout that they work really hard. Yeah. Every moment has a purpose. Like I said, you, you, your block practice has a purpose. It's based on how your brain works. Your random practice has a purpose, developing physical mental skill where mistakes are not a good thing. They're are not a bad thing. They're a good thing. Then we train under duress. That has a purpose, right? And now we talked about, Oh, as a coach, you got to help your players be accountable. That's so important. That's one thing good coaches do that bad coaches don't. I create this structure for you, Corey, and it's going to work because I've seen it work. It's tested. But what if you don't do it? Right. Now what? You're going to show up a month later. You're going to still suck. And I'm going to, you're going to pay me again and you're going to get the same information again. And then at some point you're going to realize, Oh man, that coach is not very good. I'm going to go see this other coach over here. He's got to have the answers for me. (laughs) But the reality is the player. And so. Coaches understand they're, they're great communicators. They're empathetic. They create mindfulness. They're, there's has they create accountability within their the, the relationship with the student, and because of that, they affect them not for the hour they're with them. But they affect them for the hours and hours and hours that they're not with them when the student is running uh, their processes, playing their games, and they know they're accountable and they have to report back in. And because of that, then that, that creates mindfulness, right? So I think those are the keys to great coaching. That takes effort. So coaches are given a max effort, just like, you know, they need to be. It's not just like taking a ticket, collecting the money and patting them on the back and send them on their way. It's just so much more than that. There's a guy named Dr. Wade Gilbert, who was one of those guys who we, you spoke about that tour that we went on, that we encountered on that study tour. And he described as coaches, every time that we get in front of somebody, it's like giving a performance. And we need to be in character as our best performing self. So I'm curious because I've seen you coach and I've observed it. I think I would have a little bit of an answer, but when you think about your best coaching self, when you're at your best and I'm curious what you think others might observe in you and what you feel during those moments where you feel like, all right, this is, this is as good as I've got right here. Right. Well, number one, you're creating clarity for your student. Because at the end of the day, they got to be. It's got to be clear. They got to. It's got to be simple in their mind. They got to be committed, right? So, and then how you present your information and how you the structure of your lesson is more important than what the technical pieces are or what you even you're saying. So, I'm a firm believer that the best learning is self learning. So, one of the things I'm always doing is I'm asking just a ton of questions. 
So at the beginning, I'll create expectation. This is what you can expect from me. This is what I'm expecting from you. I'll create clarity. It's like, okay, these are the three things you have to do to be an elite chipper from a technique perspective. Do you, have, do you understand them? Yes. All right. Now, when things go awry, I'm going to ask a ton of questions. So what's the solution for that? What could you have done differently? What could we have done to hit that with a little bit more spin? How come that lie made the ball do this? You know, and so when you're creating that introspection from the player by asking the right questions, that's when I think I'm, I'm at my best. I, I feel like the player, to some extent, is ultimately directing the learning instead of me. I'm just kind of pointing them in the right, right. creating the opportunities for them to learn, right? Guiding them, just nudging them along that path. Nudging them along this path. And, and at the end of the day, they, they might even go, well, that guy didn't really say anything. <laughs> but they might have had, had this amazing learning experience. That's what great coaching looks like. I really appreciate you spending almost an hour here chatting. It was a good opportunity for me to go through some of my old notes as I kind of prepared to, to catch up with you. And as I did it, I guess I wasn't surprised, but I, I was really reflecting fondly about how much of it has just become what I do, you know, and you, you do it for a while and you don't realize its origin. And then I also had a good time rediscovering some things that I need to do a better job in. So it was a good opportunity for me to, to look at that. And then now I have this conversation to go back on as well. So I look forward to seeing you on the road soon, catching up more over dinner. And, and I know that we'll certainly be cheering your players on. And we left a lot of meat on the bone here. I feel like we can probably do yeah. this again, right? <laughs> easily. Yeah, yeah, easily. And I appreciate my relationship with you and the fact that you've turned into such a good coach and a, a voracious learner and and you stayed on that quest. Those are the type of people I like being around. So well, keep cool. up the good work. Thanks, up. man. Well, let's catch up soon and we'll do it again on the podcast as well. You got it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. Your Edge.